Father, we ask that you give us ears to hear this morning your word. May your power unfold through your word and by the power of your spirit. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. We started last week uh, a series that we are calling Why Life with God Matters, looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. And we said we, this book is special because it really connects with us as it attempts to answer this question that we all wrestle with. Does our life have meaning? Do our lives have meaning? And if so, what is that meaning, that meaning of life? And so we wrestled last week with this idea that a life lived without God is meaningless, but a life lived with God matters. And so the idea was that if we are seeking and pursuing significance or meaning or satisfaction in health, wealth, uh, love or self, we will find that that pursuit is futile. It leaves us empty, it leaves us void, it does not give us the satisfaction, contentment, meaning that we're really looking for. But if we live a life with God, connected to God, centered in God, we're obeying him, we're following his ways, we're growing in grace, then that pursuit actually leads to a life that brings meaning and satisfaction. It's a life that matters. A life lived without God is meaningless, but a life lived with God matters. And one of the other things that we love about Ecclesiastes as well is it connects with us because the author, Koheleth, or uh, as he is calling himself throughout this book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher. He doesn't give himself a formal name. Uh, the name actually means a gatherer or an assembler of people or an assembler of wisdom. So the, the idea is that the preacher probably had some sort of um, position within Israel, probably in overseeing the temple worship and was a teacher of God's people. But we're just gonna call him the preacher. And so the preacher gets down with us in the nitty gritty of life. I mean, he's on the same level that we are. He's asking the same hard, deep questions that we're asking. And more often than not, his search for meaning goes even further and deeper than we will ever go. And after he does all the searching and experiencing and questioning, he comes to this conclusion, which he actually states at the very beginning of his book. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Or another translation, as we talked about, it says meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. And as we talked about last week as well, is that that word vanity or meaningless is a translation of a Hebrew word, which really means breath or vapor. The idea is it's something that you can't grasp, that you can't hold on to. And so the idea for us is as we hear the preacher use this word, and he's gonna use it like 38 times throughout Ecclesiastes. As we hear him using it, the idea isn't so much so that nothing in life has meaning, but if there is meaning, we really struggle to find out what it is. We can't hold on to it. We can't grasp it. It's an enigma. It's baffling to us. 
And so this search for meaning, this vanity of vanities, the preacher is attempting throughout the entire book to answer the question, does life have meaning? Is it true that everything is vanity? And he poses this question in verse three, which is a governing question. It's this essential question that's gonna take us all throughout the book. Verse three, he says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What do humans gain by all of their toil that they toil with under the sun? And the idea here is that this gain, another way we could say this, a little bit more of a modern translation is, what profit do we get from all of our hard work of living and working day in and day out? What's the advantage for us as we live this life in our work. Another way we can say it is, what is in it for me? What's in it for me? All the work that I'm doing in my life, day in and day out, what's in it for me? What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And what the preacher is saying here is that underlining this question is this age-old idea that selfishness and weary toil marks human existence under the sun. That humanity, day in and day out, living under the light of the sun, that's what under the sun means, here on earth, day in and day out, our entire existence seems to be a selfish and weary toil. And this is the question that will lead the preacher throughout the entire book. And it's a question, if we're really honest, we also wrestle with ourselves. We wrestle with that as well. Is there meaning? He puts it another way in verse eight and nine. Look at what he says in verses eight and nine. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. A literal translation would say, that uh, man is so discouraged by everything he sees. There's no satisfaction. The eye is not satisfied with seeing and the ear, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be and what has been done is what will be done and there is nothing new under the sun. What does a man a woman gain with all their toil at which they toil under the sun. That idea of gain, what do we get? What's in it for me? What's the advantage? What do I profit? What's the ultimate satisfaction? Our pursuit of that outside of God is futile and it's meaningless and it will wear us down it will leave us weary, it will leave us baffled. And here's the real idea, just to kind of narrow it down in a statement, that selfish work will work you into weariness. Selfish work will work you into weariness. This question that the preacher asks in verse three 
is a question I know that I've asked a lot of times, not in that way, but like, what's in it for me? What's the point? Why am I doing what I'm doing day in and day out? I mean, it connects with this on the level, right? I mean, have you ever asked that of yourself? It's like, why do I get up and go to a job every single day that I really don't like? I go and I work with people and I don't like people. Why did I take a job with people? Bad idea, never should have done that, right? Okay, uh, I'm a teacher and I spend all this time in my lesson plans and I've crafted it and I think this is gonna be gold and all my students look at me like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard, teacher. And you're like, why do I do this, right? What's the point? They're a behavior problem and their parents are usually worse. Why do I do that? Why do I get up at six o'clock in the morning when that alarm goes off and I drag out of bed and I get into the shower and it's the same old routine and I take a piece of toast and then I get into the car and I have to drive in traffic, which I hate, to a job that I hate, under a boss that I don't like, with people I don't like, and and my inbox is full with worthless, just stupid emails that I shouldn't even address anyway. And by the end of the day, I'm just beat, tired, and then I gotta drive home again into that traffic, and then when I get home, I have all those duties that I have to do at home, and then I can't wait just to sit down and watch Netflix, and then all of a sudden, I know it's time for bed, and I'm doing it again. Over and over and over. It's like we are living Bill Murray's story in Groundhog Day, right? That's what it is. Meaningless. What's the profit? What's the advantage? Have you ever asked that or is that just me, the preacher here in Ecclesiastes? I did some research this week. I wanted to see a little bit of what what do the professionals say? In our Harvard Business Journal, The Atlantic, uh, all the, the Inc. Incorporated, what do they say about work and how people view it? And overwhelmingly, this is what they, this is kind of what they came up with, what they, they tell us. So one journal says this, That for many Americans, and I would say people in general, not just obviously Americans, work seems tedious, boring, at times so pointless. By and large, people seldom enjoy their work and they don't enjoy traveling to and from it. Most jobs, they're repetitive. They require very little personal initiative. And for the most part, people are incapable of fulfilling anything like their full potential through their work. People go to a job they don't enjoy mm -hmm, and they spend a considerable proportion of their working hours getting to work and then home. And that looms large in a life that is not very pleasant from the outset. Maybe you've felt that before. Maybe you're feeling that now. And just to be clear, as we think of work, it's not just somewhere you go that I have to have a job I'm doing. Work is staying at home and watching kids and raising kids. Let's incorporate all these aspects. Work that the preacher is talking about here isn't necessarily your nine to five job. It's all of life is work. Of course, these magazines, these journals were specifically talking about that nine to five, but you get the idea. I was listening to the brand new Paul McCartney album this past weekend, which is super good, by the way, if you're a Paul McCartney fan. And as I was scrolling through some of this, I came upon some of the old Paul McCartney, which is, I think, just as good. But he wrote this song called Another Day. 
And I thought, I gotta use this. This is good. Listen to the lyrics of this. Every day, she takes a morning bath. She wets her hair and wraps a towel around her as she's heading for the bedroom chair. It's just another day. Slipping into her stockings, stepping into her shoes, dipping into the pocket of her raincoat. It's just another day. At the office where the papers go and they grow, she takes a break. She drinks another coffee and she finds it hard to stay awake. It's just another day. Is that how you view your work? You've probably been there. Some days seem to be better than others. Some days work is great. Some days I feel exactly like that. Or maybe you're even in a place right now where you're thinking, no, that's kind of just my mindset all the time. Selfish work for yourself, for your glory, for your attainment and satisfaction, selfish work will work you into weariness. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? I mean, is it supposed to be this way? I mean, is this where we're going, preacher, throughout the entire book of Ecclesiastes? That seems dreadful, cynical. Is this the way that a, a life is uh, created by a God under the sun is supposed to work? Well, if we know the true biblical story, from the very beginning, we see that no, it's not supposed to look like that. That work from the very beginning is to be a blessing. Work was created to be a blessing. If we go all the way back in the true story of God, we see the creation story of Genesis where God creates man and woman in his own image to be the God reflectors to the world. And God blesses his creation. He blesses Adam and Eve and he gives them this cultural mandate which basically, basically is to work and keep the garden of Eden that God had created for them. And not just to keep it housed there within the garden but to take that good work into all creation to extend that good work, that good rule over God's creation that he'd given Adam and Eve to do. And if you dig into that idea of work, it's always connected with the idea of rest. Work is connected with the idea of rest. And we see that, that God for six days creates. And on the seventh day, he rests. And he gives this rhythmic seven-day rhythm to his people that would shape them, that for six days they would work, not five, but for six days that they would work and on the seventh day they would rest. And there's many reasons why God did that. But one of the reasons primarily in light of our discussion today is that rest was going to help check and prevent God's people from being tempted of making their work into toil. Of making their work into a selfish gain. What do I get out of this, what's my profit? 
And as the people of God would learn to rest from their work, it was the idea of resting in God himself and trusting him to provide everything they needed. That God alone was their satisfaction. God alone was their gain. Trusting God that six days of work was enough. And so this idea in the biblical story from the very beginning is that work and humanity are intricately woven together because we're made in the image of God. And God doesn't impose this idea of work upon Adam and Eve. God models it for his people by creating and resting. We are created to work so that all of creation sees the glory of God. That's the blessing. We are created to work so that all of creation sees the glory of God in and through our work. The work that we say, the work that we do with our hands, all of that is a blessing so that we may be a blessing. But as we know that garden narrative takes pretty drastic turn. When Adam and Eve then are tempted by the serpent's lie selfishly to believe that true satisfaction and true wisdom can come outside of God alone. It's like the idea of Adam and Eve saying, well, what's the profit of following you, God? What's in it for me? And so they take of the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they eat of that and their eyes are open and now this perfect, innocent communion with God is severed because of their sin. If you turn to Genesis 3, I wanna read this. Genesis 3 and we know the story that at this point, God curses the serpent who lied to Adam and Eve and he now curses the work of Adam and Eve both in childbearing as well as in the actual ground that they will do. Genesis 3, we'll start with verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all the livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And as we have said a hundred times before, here's this hope, this glimpse this foretaste of the promise that's coming that someday someone is going to come and make right all that Adam and Eve blew up in the garden. Putting an end to the curse. And to the woman, verse 16, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. That's work. I have never done it but I've seen my wife do it. That's toil, that's labor, metaphorically, as well as literally. 
your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And now there's this curse, even this enmity between husband and wife. The wife will now want to take the role that God had ordained for the husband and discussed that before. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Not only has death entered into the story that was never meant to be, now the work that God had given Adam and Eve to do is now turning into toil. The work that was supposed to be a joy that God had given Adam and Eve to do in the garden and to extend to all of the world would now be toil, sweat, and blood, and frustration, and now a selfish mentality, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? Selfish work will work you into weariness. Selfish work will work you into weariness. And so the preacher, getting back to our text in Ecclesiastes, knowing that all this gain, selfish gain, what's in it for me and all this toil has gone on and on and on ever since Genesis 3, the chapter that we just read, till now, and it continues on and on, just like the cycles of nature, And he writes this poem in verses four through 11, showing the the enigma of life, the the bafflement, the vanity of life. It's like four through 11 is answering two and three here in many ways. Let's just kind of take them through real quickly. Verse four, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Humans have come before us. Humans are gonna come after us and it's insignificant compared to the fact that the world seems to be going forever. Sun rises. The sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuit, the wind returns. It's this idea that the sun and the wind, they're active they're always, it's always doing something, but it seems to never have an end. It never seems to have a purpose. There's nothing accomplished by it. It's kind of this similar experience of humanity. What's the point? All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow, and there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. Again, it's the idea that the the streams are constantly moving, but the sea is never filled to the rim. It doesn't overflow. 
that continues this cycle over and over and over again as it is with humans. All things are weariness. Selfish work will work you into weariness. And our eyes, they're not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. The advertisers of our world get this verse. You need something newer. You need to wear something better. Well, yeah, wait a minute. I had the iPhone. I just got it last week. Yeah, but the new iPhone comes out next week and you need that one because it's 10 times better. Well, dad, I need a new shirt, new shoes. We, we just got you that last year. These look great. Yeah, but it's not new. Everyone's gonna see and they're gonna make fun of me. No one's gonna look at your shoes. We're not satisfied with what we see. We need more. Our, our lives are this ongoing insatiable hunger to be satisfied. And when we're looking for in health, wealth, love, or self, it won't satisfy. It's futile. Just like the thought that the sea is actually gonna continue to one day fill up completely, it's not gonna happen. Not gonna happen. What has been is what will be, verse nine, and what has been done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has already been done in the ages before us. I was listening to NPR this week and they did an interview with Paul Simon, another fantastic artist. And they had asked him a question about his songs, and the question was more of like, what makes a song a classic? Like, what is actually going to stick into the minds of people? How do you know, in other words, that what you've written, your song is like gonna matter, it's gonna last? And he said, well, I think a lot of my songs have done pretty well. But really, when pressed, he said, here's, it, here's the key. If a song lasts for 100 years in people's minds, then it's a classic then it matters. And I'm thinking in light of this sermon, like none of us are gonna be alive to hear it. How does it matter? What profit or gain is it? It's the idea of enjoy the music now. Enjoy it now while you have it. And that's just a little teaser of where the preacher will eventually be going. There's nothing new under the sun. There's gonna be another Paul Simon. There's gonna be another Jay-Z. It's gonna continue, continue and continue. And verse 11, capstones, there's no remembrance of forever or for, of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after us. If no one's gonna remember me, then what's the point? Why do all this work and toil and sweat at work for my kids, for the church? You fill in the blank. What's the point? What's the point? Real uplifting, isn't it? It's like, let's go out now and be a light to the world in light of this good news, preacher. 
See, the idea is, is, is really, it really, we asked this last week, is the preacher a cynic? Or is he just on the level of real life, getting in the trenches, saying, my faith, I'm, I'm wearing it on my sleeve. I'm asking the hard questions. See, he's already showing us that a life without God is meaningless and stick with us because we'll get to it eventually where he will show us and unveil to us that a life with God matters. But here's one thing that caught my attention yesterday and it hadn't the entire time I've been prepping this past week is when you even look through those verses, verses one through 11, and you see, it seems the vanity and the, the idea that selfish work works you into weariness, there's still a longing for God's grace and meaning in these passages. That although the preacher doesn't state it or necessarily see it, at least in our minds at this time, there's the fact that the wind does blow the sun still rises. The streams still flow. We need water. Farmers need wind. We all need the sun. There's grace going on here. And it got me thinking through my own life and the life of us as the Missio family and think through this in your life right now. If you are going through this idea of I am weary, I'm tired, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Where is the grace of God at work in your life? Maybe you hate your job and you don't like the people you work with and you don't like the circumstances that you find yourself in. But I wanna challenge you to see and ask, God, where are you working in the midst of this? Where is your grace at work in the midst of this? See, if we look at it from this perspective that the preacher does right away, we see that selfish work will work us into weariness. But we don't have to remain there. Because instead, we can let the rest of God work in us we can let the rest of God work in us. See, what the preacher hasn't seen yet is the end of the story, which we get a snapshot of, is that the God of all history isn't a God that's indifferent. Although the preacher says that history continues, there's nothing new in history, these cycles continue, he should have known better as a teacher of Israel the God of all creation is in charge of everything. His plans and his purposes are being enacted through history, so much so that he sends his own son, Jesus the Christ, into history, the climax of history, to be the salvation our souls need. And so that we no longer have to strive to gain satisfaction in health, wealth, love, or self. We can now find true satisfaction and meaning in Jesus who gives us rest. He says in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, he says, come to me all you who are weary and burdened 
and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle and humble in spirit, and you will find rest for your souls. See, when we come to Jesus and really submit to him as the Lord of our lives, as the true satisfaction, then everything we've been attempting to gain in this life, everything from our job to kids to wealth to a better health life, whatever it looks like, all these things we're trying to find meaning and satisfaction are futile. But Jesus says, you come to me, I'm gonna give you life and I'm gonna give it to you abundantly. And you're gonna find rest from all that weary toil. And even in the midst of our brokenness, even in the midst, as we said last week, that Ecclesiastes is trying to figure out how is Genesis 1 and 2 true in a Genesis 3 world, that even in the brokenness of that laborious day-to-day mundane toil, there's still opportunity and God is still redeeming our work so that we see again that the work that we do is for the good of others and for the glory of God. And that it isn't pointless. It isn't vanity. It isn't meaningless when Jesus is in the center of it. That's why Paul writes, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Instead of selfish gain, working you into weariness, let the rest of Jesus work in you to redeem not only your soul, but to redeem everyday life, work, A life lived with God matters. Father, we love you. We delight in you. Father, we may be here right now weary, worn out, selfishly looking to gain. Not for the sake of your name or for the sake of others, but for the sake of ourselves so that we feel significant, that we feel like we have meaning to feel like we, we matter. But God, help us not to buy into those lies, but to see that in Jesus, we have true satisfaction. That in Christ, we have been redeemed and rescued from the futility of a life without you. Father God, restore our hearts. Those who are weary in their work, give them joy. Help them to rest in you, Lord Jesus. We ask and pray, amen.